Welcome to the Shiloh Podcast. This episode is part of a series we're doing in conjunction with the Abuse and Religious Context Project, a project of major work funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK and looking at the peculiar factors which allow abuse to take place within religious settings. In this episode, we're hearing about one such setting, the 3HO community and its founder and leader, Yogi Bhajan. And I'm joined by Stacey Stukin, a journalist and essayist, and Philip De Slip, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at UC Santa Barbara. Um, so, Stacey, um, just tell us when and how you became engaged in this story. Well, I'm a Los Angeles-based arts and culture journalist, and part of what I've covered for many years is health and wellness, including yoga. And I also have practiced yoga for many years. And I, I was very aware of the 3HO community, particularly here in Los Angeles, and of yoga for, you know, over 20 years. And I had heard rumors, you know, over the years about sexual misconduct. But, you know, that didn't affect me directly. And it was just rumors. But I was also very interested in the organization because I knew that they had a lot of businesses, a lot of very lucrative, important businesses here in the States in the natural products area and in um, security, national security here in the United States. And um, long story short, so I had long been interested in the community and during the pandemic, I became aware of a memoir and I began to investigate it. And subsequently I wrote um, a long form investigative piece for Los Angeles Magazine that kind of broke open the story and made the allegations very public. And Philip, you came to it from a, a, a different um, discipline, as it were, as an academic. So tell me how you got engaged in the story. So my very first week as an undergraduate student at the University of Connecticut, I saw a flyer for a free yoga class. And I thought, yoga, that's something I'd like to try out. I was a practitioner of Kundalini Yoga. I taught Kundalini Yoga in a few venues. And eventually I moved to Los Angeles and I was living in proximity to the 3HO community there. Um, in the mid 2000s, I began a master's program at the University of Iowa. And I was researching, and still am researching, the early history of yoga and metaphysical movements in the United States. And as I started to develop CHOPS as a researcher, uh, the giant question mark <laughs> came up in front of me. I wonder what would happen if I started doing research on where Yogi Bhajan claimed that Kundalini Yoga came from. And so I started interviewing people and tracking down published sources. And that culminated in an article I published in 2012 for a journal called Sick Formations that talked about the actual roots of Yogi Bhajan's yoga. Brilliant. Um, very briefly, how did you and Stacy come to work together? Well, Philip was a, a very important source to me when I was reporting the story. And we continued to have conversations after the story ran. And as the story evolved, we recognized that we were had a good partnership. My skills as a journalist and do, having done investigative work, his skills as an academic and his knowledge of Sikhi and yoga. And so we decided to pool our resources and start to collaborate. I think we also realized that 3HO as a subject is so big 
and complicated and messy that you really need more than one brain uh, to work on it um, because it is so intricate and complicated and unusual. And so we first did a news story after the um, third party investigation came out. And then uh, the big work that we've done so far was an investigative feature for Boz, where we basically give the entire structure and history of 3HO in about 6,000 words. And, and three of those are the three H's, which is um, healthy, happy, holy. Uh, 3HO is Healthy Happy Holy Organization, which was founded by Yogi Bhajan. And it, it's an extraordinary story. And it has taken years for the abuse that happened in that organization in, in multiple forms to actually come to light. And the ramifications are continuing. First of all, let's um, let's say who Yogi Bhajan was. Was because he died in 2004 before much of the story was widely known. Grew up in Pakistan, grew up as a Sikh. Um, and in 1968, Philip, he comes to California. And what does he do? Well, it depends on who you ask. So according to members of 3HO, Yogi Bhajan comes to California because he is hearing this call of spiritually hungry young people in the United States. He works as a customs inspector at Delhi's Pulham Airport. According to him, he sees these young naive hippies coming to India for spiritual wisdom and getting exploited. So he feels the need to come to Los Angeles and teach them this secret yogic technology. In reality, he first goes to Canada and we know that he flees Canada and comes to the United States because he gets a woman pregnant. And when he arrives in Los Angeles, according to his first hosts, he doesn't really have a plan um, he talks openly about wanting to set up an import-export business to one of his first hosts, which makes perfect sense if you're a customs inspector at an airport. But I think he quickly realizes that in Los Angeles in late 1968, he's in this perfect location to be seen as a spiritual master and a yoga guru. And he is very quickly able to take the bits of yoga that he has learned from various teachers in India and fashion it into this package that's very attractive to these uh, spiritual seekers. Uh, and this package is called Kundalini Yoga. Does he does he coin that term or is it already a term that exists? The idea of Kundalini exists. Kundalini as this energy that rests at the base of the spine like a coiled serpent and that will, if properly invoked, go up the spine and give a person power or enlightenment or realization. Yogi Bhajan does a very kind of clever thing. People know about Kundalini energy and they know that it's very powerful and scary and risky. And what he does is he takes other forms of yoga and he presents them as Kundalini yoga. And he says, I'm invoking the same energy, but I do it in a very safe way so that people can have the best of all possible worlds. So he founds this community called the 3HO community. And, and does it take off? What's the appeal of it? Yes, I mean, it takes off pretty quickly. I mean, he starts teaching at a place called the East West Center, which is kind of a, it's a place where people go who are interested in Eastern thought. He starts teaching yoga there. 
and he begins to create uh, a following and then he finds other places to teach. And, you know, there's this Sunday class, you know, where, you know, there's a Sunday class in an antique store that, you know, maybe a hundred students come on the weekend. There's a home in the area where they kind of start to create an ashram and he just starts sending out you're, you're a yoga teacher. And so very quickly, it's kind of like a pyramid scheme, right? You're a yoga teacher. I'm sending you here. An ashram opens in Oregon. An ashram opens in Northern California. Ashrams start to open all over the country within, you know, three years of 1968. And I, I want to explore the relationship with um, Sikhi a little bit later. But I'm, I'm interested in that when I think of the word ashram, I think of Hinduism. When I think of yogis, I think of Hinduism. And yet this man grew up as a Sikh in Punjab. I mean, Philip, can you sort of explain that to me? There are two things at play. The first is that from 3HO periodicals and Yogi Bhajan himself, we know that Yogi Bhajan's background is not necessarily pure Sikhism. Um, he is involved with um, astrologers and pundits who are doing Hindu rituals. So he has a very kind of Hindu-infused Sikhi. We also know that he's very adept at seeing what his students and followers want and not necessarily catering to them, but presenting their own ideas back to them. Um, so if they are talking about ashrams, if they are vegetarian, even if Yogi Bhajan himself isn't into these ideas, he's going to turn them around and present them back to them. So he's eventually presenting himself as a Sikh missionary, but the actual 3HO lifestyle and community is very much a hodgepodge of Eastern spirituality, new age metaphysics, uh, hippie counterculture, all brought together. Stacy, Yeah, and I would add to that, and Philip kind of touched on it, the, the, the hippie counterculture is very also connected to music and rock and roll. And part of Siki is Kirtan. So he's able... Just explain to... Kirtan, please, for people who don't know the term. Okay, so Kirtan is a practice of devotional singing. And so he begins to incorporate that into his yoga and meditation practice. And that's very attractive to these hippies who, you know, many of them are musicians. So they create these, you know, times to practice and play music and sing Kirtan. So Again, that's kind of melding a, a Sikh tradition within the yoga practice as a way that is attractive to his followers. Something very important in this story happens in 1970 when Yogi Bhajan takes 80 or so of his followers to, to India. Tell me what happens, Philip. So in late 1970, Yogi Bhajan takes about 80 of his followers to India. And this trip is billed as a trip to spiritual India, an opportunity to do shopping, uh, sightseeing. Yogi Bhajan, of course, when he's talking to newspapers, advertises it as a drug study because he's going to get young people off of drugs with yoga. The trip quickly falls apart. Yogi Bhajan takes his students to his teacher, uh, a man named Baba Virsa Singh, and the two have a falling out. Virsa Singh never taught yoga. He is very suspicious of someone who is getting money from followers. So they quickly split and Yogi Bhajan rapidly and adeptly 
remodels his students and his trips. His students are told explicitly, don't talk about yoga, say that you are Sikhs, say that you're reciting names of God, Nam Japo. He starts taking his students around from village to village, and he has them dressed up like Sikhs, performing kirtan to these stunned rural Punjabi audiences who are shocked to see American middle-class hippies looking and acting like Sikhs. Remarkably, Yogi Bhajan takes this all the way to the top, and he takes his group of students to Amritsar, to the Harimandir Sahib or the Golden Temple. He presents himself as a Sikh missionary, and kind of comedically and astonishingly, he holds up photos of himself addressing crowds of hippies at music festivals, and he makes claims of, you know, I'm converting tens of thousands of Americans, I'm doing remarkable work. And so he's celebrated. He's given credentials because they don't really know what to do with someone like him. They give him simple credentials as a minister. Uh, they give him a saropa, a piece of cloth, like a robe of honor. Um, there are photos taken. And then he comes back to the United States, having very quickly burned his bridges with his previous teacher, but also opened up this new possibility of himself as a religious leader and a Sikh missionary. It's, it's difficult not to feel a little bit of admiration for this for this man. You know, thinking on his feet, Stacey, got to one crisis, turns it round and, and comes away with all sorts of, you know, accolades and recognition. Yes. <laughs> yes. Be, begrudging is. admiration. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is a sort of genius, but as time goes on, that it becomes, you know, a bit malignant and perhaps malicious in some cases. Um, I mean, absolutely. But but the, the way that the, the brain that can sort of, you know, turn that sort of disaster round into into his own advantage is, is quite something, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, and the other thing he does is he takes his students into the Golden Temple and unwittingly they perform an omrits um, ceremony and become Sikhs. They become members of the Khalsa, which is that's kind of an unheard of thing to do as well. I mean, the Amrit ceremony is, 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 where, is the means by which somebody converts to um, Sikhism, um, isn't it, Philip? And did, did the students know that that was what they were doing at the time? I, I, think, I think it's even more than simple conversion. Um, for most Sikhs, Amrit is a very deep and profound commitment to living as a Sikh. And there are many Sikhs who are observant Sikhs for decades who still don't feel ready to take Amrit. So to have these yoga students who know next to nothing about what they're doing, taking Amrit, it's, it's audacious. It is really astounding. So he's, he's back in, in the US and he, he claims that when he was in India, he, he was given a title, the Sri Singh Saab, Chief Religious and Administrative Authority for the whole Western Hemisphere. I mean, it, it just beggars belief, really, doesn't it? Um, and it also helps that the people who he claims bestow this title on him die fairly soon afterwards. But Stacey, what was the reaction of Sikh organizations in the in the US and wider field to to this claim? There's a lot of back and forth, you know, there's there's a lot of disparagement, but there's also a there's a people are reticent to speak up because in many ways he has created this this Sikh culture in America and there still is 
this sense that that missionary work may be important. I mean, what what, what elements of uh, his version of Sikhism actually align with the mainstream faith and which um, don't? I mean, Sikhs don't practice yoga at all, do they? All wear white. Um, what Yogi Bhajan does successfully as far as being a Sikh leader with his interactions between Sikh authorities in India and elsewhere and his own organization is there's a lot of careful dissimulation that goes on. So to his students understand him and Sikhi in ways that are very different than they describe to other Sikhs. So they will say in public, yoga is just exercise. You know, it's like tennis. It's like jogging. Um, Yogi Bhajan, he's just a teacher. He's like a helpful guide. He's showing us about Sikhi. But within 3HO, they absolutely see Yogi Bhajan as a guru and they see yoga as a spiritual path to enlightenment. So it's this very careful maneuvering of how they are seen by other Sikhs. It's also extremely important that people in the United States know nothing about Sikhi. So he has, he and his followers have carte blanche to describe what they do as Sikhi and no journalist or reporter will know any better. Um, he also does this really remarkable twist of language. So the religion that they incorporate is called Sikh Dharma. And so he is able to make it seem like his title and his incorporated religion are essentially Sikhi writ large. But to many Sikhs in India, he makes it known, well, this is just my own little organization in the US. So it's a very kind of clever back and forth game that he plays. But within well, the way that his followers also know very little about Sikhi. So they take him at his word. He is, you know, one people we interviewed said he was like the Pope. What he said went. We didn't know anything else. So he told us we were Sikhs. So we thought we were Sikhs. I think the best way to understand it is like, there's like a Venn diagram where Punjabi Sikhs and 3HO Sikhs, they have certain things in common, but 3HO Sikhs are also doing things that are completely outside the mainstream Sikh tradition, and they are doing many things for a completely different rationale than other Sikhs are doing before. But there wasn't an outcry from other Los Angeles Sikhs about, you know, they're, in, they're creating a completely new sort of version of Sikhism. There wasn't, there weren't voices raised in protest about what he was doing or about that audacious title that he claimed. Maybe in private, but certainly not public. I mean, there was a book published in the UK that really was kind of a step-by-step debunking of the title and his role as a, as a Sikh religious leader. But in general, no. I think it's not too ridiculous to say that Yogi Bhajan flies under the radar. He avoids scandal um, because he is taking advantage of a vulnerable minority. There are very few Sikhs in the United States throughout the 1980s and afterwards um, with all of the tumultuous events that are happening in India. Sikhs are vulnerable and in many ways their fate is tied to 3HO. To expose the scandals of Yogi Bhajan risks tarnishing the name of Sikhs in general in the United States. And 
3HO6 are a very visible and outward expression of Sikhi. So I think for many Punjabi Sikhs, they don't understand 3HO. They're suspicious of 3HO and Yogi Bhajan, but they also realize that it's very helpful to have these smiling, polite white families talking to local newspapers about how they don't do drugs and they work hard and they're just like your other neighbors. I mean, the other thing is some of the 3HO gurdwaras were some of the first gurdwaras in some cities and communities. And if there were Punjabis there, that was a place where they could go worship if they didn't have their own temples. Not, not, unlike, the, not unlike the Hare Krishnas, where you have a lot of new immigrants who that is the place that you can go. That is the temple. So Stacy, he he um he's in Los Angeles and he's he's building a brand, isn't he? Tell us about um his business activity and how that takes off. Well, he's he yes, he's building a brand. So there's a couple of things going on. He's he's building a brand very quickly. He's attracting people to teach yoga, but then as people start to live in in community and ashrams. They're wearing white. They have turbans. Not so easy to get a job, right? So they they begin to start their own businesses, um, and they kind of they start businesses that are in alignment with their lifestyle. So we see vegetarian restaurants. We see health food distributors. We see um, then we see just you know simple small businesses: window cleaning, landscaping plumbers. And then they also start to do use the the Sikh tradition, the military Sikh tradition, and they start doing small time security for concerts or county fairs. So all these things start to grow as, let me back up, particularly in the natural foods um, arena, they they start Yogi Tea. And so as the natural foods business starts to become a real player in in the economy as a, as a trend, they're kind of just at the right time riding that trend. And same with the health food distribution businesses, bakeries. And it just, they're hardworking. They're being paid very poorly. Sometimes they're not being paid at all. And that's a great way to build a business. You have very low overhead. You're living in community. You're feeding them. They're working for free. And you can you can build a business pretty quickly that way. So he's the, head of this business, is he? All these businesses. I can do two things. One is like to back up a little bit, just to add a quote to what Stacy said. Um, we interviewed people who were starting some of these early businesses who were themselves serial entrepreneurs. And they said, they admitted that as far as starting a new business goes, you couldn't have a better model than all of these spiritual seekers working for free. Many of them credit the longevity of their businesses to those practices, to that beginning. But what was Yogi Bhajan's relationship to, to them? Did he oversee them all? So there was a combination of things. Sometimes he was involved in starting the businesses. Other times the businesses were started and then he took them over. Um, there were some people who were holdouts and refused to hand over their businesses. 
but there are, you know, reports of him really bullying people to hand over businesses. A lot of the ashrams were in private homes. There's a wave of those homes being signed over to the Siri Singh Saab Corporation, which he is um, the head of in the um, early throughout the 70s. And you can, you know, you see the po- the paperwork. Personal homes are being signed over to the organization, and it basically indicates that if you do not follow, you know, the lifestyle of Sikh Dharma, you know, um, that that's contingent upon, you know, being able to stay in the home. And he he he's a corporation soul. Can you just explain what that term means, Stacey? Corporation soul is um, the Queen of England is a corporation soul. The Roman Catholic Church is the corporation's soul. It's something um, relegated by the government to religious organizations. And as long as you have a religious title and an established religion, there is um, you can get a corporation soul. And Yogi Bhajan is at the top. He is the person who administered the corporation soul. So he has control over everything that kind of falls under that title. And in 3HO, it is, if you look at an organizational um, chart, um, you know, people have referred to it like the Tudor court. I mean, it's like, you know, the arms of it are just like, you know, craggly tree trunks, you know, it just. But it's a way of him really having complete control. Correct. To be a corporation self, yeah. I, I think I think it's important to recognize that Yogi Bhajan does not just have control over his followers. He has several types of distinct control over his followers. Legally, as the head of the corporation soul, he has that kind of administrative power. All of the assets that are signed over to the religion of Sikh Dharma, he has unfettered access to all of those assets. He can do whatever he wants with those businesses, with those homes, with that money. But he also has spiritual control over his followers. The reason why his followers are signing over their homes to the religion, signing over their businesses to the religion, is because they believe him when he starts to tell them in the mid-70s that society is going to fall apart, the world is about to go through these cataclysmic changes, and the only way that we can make it through is if we band together as this spiritual nation. So he's using multiple types of control to coerce people to give up um, their lives and their livelihoods to him. Right. So there's a sort of apocalyptic element to his teaching, which which, without going too much into a discussion about what a cult is, you often get in um, cultic organisations, don't you? If we can move to sort of how some of how the abuse started to come to light or how it came to light, I mean, it appears in some ways that the abuse within the organisation had been known or suspected for years. I mean, that Time magazine in 1977 called him a womaniser. That doesn't necessarily mean he's an abuser, but it suggests that something might not be quite right within the organisation. And then in 1986, there was a, a lawsuit brought by Pamela Dyson, which was settled out of court. But it wasn't really, correct me if I'm wrong, until she publishes a memoir in 2020 that the sort of the, the floodgates open and survivors start to come forward. What, what are they saying? What, what's she saying? And what are they saying? Well, 
Pamela Dyson is known as Premka Kaur in 3HO. Her official title is Secretary General, but she is also one of Yogi Bhajan's earliest students and one of his most vocal promoters. We also know from our reporting that she is directly involved in a lot of the legal maneuvering to establish Sikh Dharma as a religion, create the corporation's soul, and her signature is on a host of documents when people are signing their ashrams over to the religion. But what what does she claim about the abuse that she suffered at the hands of Yogi Bhajan? I mean, that, that I think that's what's what's really interesting about the memoir is that many people in talking about the memoir describe it as part of the Me Too movement, that she is a whistleblower. But when you actually read the memoir, in some ways it's most interesting for what it does not mention. There is uh, mention of her disappointment in Yogi Bhajan as a lover and you know someone that she is very close to. There's almost no mention of his grooming of underage girls to join his harem, his sexual abuse and misconduct to dozens of women. There's no mention of the exploitation and abuse of hundreds of then children who were born into 3HO. There's no mention of the financial abuse and exploitation people who are swindled into signing over their homes and their inheritances and their businesses. Um, And then I think the other big question that looms over the memoir, and Pamela Dyson is not alone in this, there's the obvious question of Yogi Bhajan's been dead for 15 years. Why now? The biggest revelations were those of the second generation who were separated from their parents sent to schools in India and suffered extreme abject neglect, medical neglect, malnutrition, physical abuse, in some cases, sexual abuse. So as those stories come to pour out, you know, that's a very different story than what Pamela is saying. But what, but that book did allow people the space to start to tell their stories. And it's also in the middle of the pandemic. So it's kind of this perfect storm of all these, you know, social forces coming together, including the Me Too movement. And the stories just come, you know, pouring forward. So the we've got two, well, you've got abuse within the organisation uh, in, in America by Yogi Bhajan himself. And then you've got the abuse of uh, second generation children in homes in India, which presumably are by other members of the 3HO organisation. Yeah. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But her memoir does open the floodgates for victims to come forward. And, and you both, and Stacey, you spent a lot of time sort of digging around and, and looking back into archives, I assume, and letters and sermons. And, and, and what, did, what did you find there, which in a way might have, um, should have sounded the warning bell much earlier in, in things that he said and taught or, or stories that, that were around at, at the time? Um. Yes, there is there is a website called the Library of Teachings that houses a lot of his lectures, and there is um, within those lectures um, a lot of commentary that's a bit disturbing and kind of prescient about the sexual misconduct that is to come out later. You know, rape is invited. Um, you know, if your wife gets out of line, you know, you can hit her. Um, but I also think what's more important is kind of the patriarchal structure of 3HO. I mean, certainly 
you know, Yogi Bhajan is at the head of that heap. But as you go down, you know, the men who are running the ashrams, the way the women, well, while the women are very involved in the businesses and are working and some of them, you know, maybe getting educations and such, but in general, you know, um, a lot of that behavior goes on within those marriages. There's a lot of domestic abuse. Um, if a woman wants to leave the organization and get a divorce, um, most likely she's not. She's going to lose her children. So a lot of women have to stay if they want to stay with their children. So, you know, yes, he validated that kind of treatment, but that didn't stop. How do I put it? He's not the only one, right? Yeah. You know, it's a whole community that is not in general treating women really well. And in fact, um, we did a presentation um, and I I looked at a lot of uh, newspaper articles, you know, from the early days in 3HO reporting across the country of the ashrams. And it was really interesting because you had these reporters, you know, this is like the height of second wave feminism. And you have these reporters um you know, kind of asking these questions of, of the women because it, it, to me, as a journalist, I'm, I'm reading between the lines and they're looking at these, this lifestyle and seeing that, you know, maybe these women aren't as um, liberated as they say they are. And so it's an interesting, you know, counterpoint to what's going on in, in the culture to how they're actually living their lives. Um it's possible to look back now at Yogi Bhajan's lectures and see admissions or evidence of the harm that he was doing. But I think more damning is to look back to the lived experiences of 3HO community members over the decades. And you had to ignore so many red flags to stay in the community and tell yourself that everything is fine. When Stacey and I did our piece for Religion News Service, we had this moment of being totally overwhelmed where we got to the point in the story where we had to describe the allegations against Yogi Bhajan. And we were like, there is so much. Like, we had this whole back and forth. Like, of these 10 accusations, what do we include? In what order? Do we call it sexual assault? Do we call it rape? Does the battery go in front of the harassment? It was just this overwhelming thing of there is so much. And I think there is so much abuse in 3HO that it's it's at the point of overwhelming anyone who looks at it in its totality. You know, it, it's 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 horrifying. Um and especially when to talk about one is to not be talking about the other. So the Olive Branch report, which was the independent third party investigation that looked into the allegations of Yogi Bhajan after you know, all these stories came flooding out after um, Kremka's memoir. You know, it's a pretty astounding document. And um, it basically shows that his role as a spiritual leader took precedent over everything else. So, you know, people, you know, he was like Christ or the Buddha. He cannot, he, he couldn't have been capable of this. He's not, he doesn't have like those worldly urges. And then that's contrasted with these, you know, horrible stories of rape, sexual assault, battery, and the allegations go on and on in, in, in a lot of, you know, very disturbing detail. And so, you know, his, his religious authority ultimately is the authority that allows him 
to, you know, get away with, with not only the sexual misconduct, but all the other manipulation and abuse within the organization. You, you mentioned there the, the Olive Branch um, investigation. That was actually commissioned by the Sri Saab Corporation, which is still in existence, you know, after um, Yogi Bhajan's death. Um, am I right in thinking, though, that that investigation wanted to limit itself only to the allegations of sexual abuse? Yes. It ex- explicitly says that. The Olive Branch Report, as it's commissioned, it is not only funded by 3HO, but it very clearly and explicitly limits the scope of its investigation. So it's telling a very, very important story, but it's not telling the whole story. And the fact that the Olive Branch Report allowed so much space to be given to defenders of Yogi Bhajan, in a sense, as as a reporter, as uh, an investigator that's very valuable. You get this remarkable insight into how people would justify these things. But as a as an investigation, it's unusual and it's almost absurd to be giving that much time to people who are defending the person accused of all of these horrible things. There was an extraordinary comment by somebody called Shanti Korkalsa about about the re- the report, sort of saying, "Well, you know, I know we have to look into it, but it doesn't mean that anything that anybody claims against Yogi Bhajan is going to be true." And and this was, you know, this was somebody who is involved in the commissioning of the report. Yeah. What what credibility do we give the report? I think the Olive Branch report is best understood in the very simple terms of what it is. It is a limited investigation sponsored by 3HO and carried out by an organization whose job explicitly stated on their own website is essentially crisis management to help walk religious and spiritual organizations through these critical moments where abuse allegations flare up. So it shouldn't be a surprise that so much of the report gives equal time to Yogi Bhajan's defenders. It shouldn't be surprising that it doesn't have harsh conclusions about shutting down the organization or anything further. Um, it is crisis management. It is paid for crisis management in a sense, where the harshest recommendations are going to be to, you know, maybe you establish a commission, maybe you do further investigation, maybe you have training, but essentially business as usual. The, the report, I will note, also points out that they feel like not everybody came forward that they felt that, um, you know, there were probably other survivors out there. Which, which is which is stunning because they also admit to being overwhelmed. So they are simultaneously saying, we had way more survivors than we ever anticipated, and there are probably still even more out there that we didn't speak with. So there's not a lot of value in this report, really, is there? Well, I mean, I think there's value in the sense that there's an article out there, you know, that we wrote that that really breaks it down. And if you Google Yogi Bhajan, it comes up pretty quickly. <laughs> um, I think there's value there that there is some public exposure and that if somebody wants to go look for the report and read it, you know, they can they can decide for themselves, you know, what the conclusions state. And um and I think it's pretty clear that that those you know survivors are credible tellers of the trauma they suffered, and it's documented. 
Um, can we just talk very briefly before we before we wrap up? Can we just talk very briefly about what were the factors within 3HO? We've touched on some of them already um, that that kept the abuse hidden for, for so long. I would say that there are several factors that allowed the abuse to go on as long as it did and delayed any kind of significant exposure of that abuse until a decade and a half after Yogi Bhajan's death, more. I think one of those factors is Yogi Bhajan's spiritual authority during his lifetime. Uh, Joel Kramer and Diana Alsted did a book called The Guru Papers, and that was their central argument, is that abuse in a religious context is like other abuse, except religious authority is immune to so much of the criticism that other leaders have. You know, in no way would we excuse the abuse of a corporate executive or a film producer in the way that people in the Olive Branch report say, well, even if he was doing these things, we couldn't understand what exactly he was doing. He was operating at a different plane than us. I think the abuse took so long to come to light because um, many people felt guilty or were complicit in what went on to out the abuse is to out your own participation or support of either the abuse or the structure that allowed it to happen. I also think that there's a dynamic in 3HO and in other religious communities where as people defect and leave a group, it changes the dynamic of the group. So when the people who are most willing and able to leave after seeing abuse happen, who remains? You have the people who are less able to leave, who are able to justify more things that they see in front of them. So you have this dynamic where as whistleblowers leave, they leave a core behind that are much more likely to allow abuse to continue. Stacey? I mean, I think the other reason that it has taken longer for some of the um, abuse to come to light, because also it takes, sometimes it takes many years for survivors to tell their stories. Um, you know, they've been holding them around for so many years. And, you know, we know now with, with trauma that either their shame or there's, you know, reddit, ret being reticent to share within the community, because let's say you're in second gen and your parents are still a member of the organization. So for you to come forward and say that, that, you know, that has a lot of ramifications. I mean, the other thing is sometimes memories are not so clear. Sometimes memories come back. And during this period, as people started, you know, flooding all these these stories start coming forth, you know, other people felt more comfortable to tell their stories then too, because it wasn't them holding this on their own. And, and for some, presumably, it's that being part of the organisation gave their lives such meaning, perhaps offered them sort of ecstatic experiences that they wouldn't access somewhere else and gave them a sort of spiritual fulfillment, which meant that almost sort of existentially, they, they couldn't face the reality of, of, of what was happening around them. I, w I would agree with that. And I think to this day, you know, many early uh, members, people who joined the organization early on, who are still, you know, committed to Yogi Bhajan. I mean, think about it, to, um, to admit the harm, 
it means walking away from your whole life and your, your, your whole identity. I want to ask you just both very briefly to just answer a final question. Um, do you think such a thing could happen again? In, 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 what, in what sense? Like, um... I said, well, I mean, we're now in the internet age. Um, the communication is so, is, is so much easier. Um, there's so much more awareness of abuse in society. So I'm just wondering, you know, whether it will be possible for such a thing to happen with such apparent ease again. I mean, I'm not a, a, a fortune teller, but I think the thing to point out is that the scale that it happened within 3HO is quite astounding. And when you look in, when you look at the businesses and the, and the, everything that the, the organization holds and, but, and even though there weren't that many people in the organization, relatively speaking, but sure, it could happen again on maybe on a smaller scale. I don't know if they could build, you know, a business that gets, you know, billion dollar contracts from the U.S. government. I mean, I think in one sense, the scale of the abuse and the misconduct and the criminal activity within 3HO is remarkable. It would be difficult to imagine a group reproducing that, you know, a group that is I like to say the size of a large urban American high school, three to 4,000 members containing so many criminal activities, so much abuse, so much misconduct. It's astounding to put those two things side by side. I think some elements of 3HO seem in hindsight to be products of a very specific time. The counterculture, baby boomers who are leaving these often cold and distant and abusive households wanting to create a different kind of life for themselves in a spiritual community. A lot of that feels like it's very much part of the late 60s, early 70s. But I think other factors are perennial. People looking for healing, people looking for help, people finding validation in a group, um, the ability of someone who is offering easy answers and is willing to exploit other people. That That is not <laughs> a relic of a very particular time. That seems to be ongoing. And, you know, I'd point out that the organization still is in business and is still operating and the yoga is still very popular and people are still teaching the yoga and they are still having teacher trainings. And so... 3HO in many ways is still alive and kicking. I mean, how long that, that it can sustain itself, you know, remains to be seen, but it's, it's still a presence in the, in the health world of health and wellness. And certainly in, in, you know, Yogi Tea is still a very viable company all over the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in some ways it's, it's very presumptive to learn about everything that's, come out about 3HO and just assume that it's over or it will end quickly or that the natural impulse of any reasonable person would be to not do the made-up yoga of a serial rapist or to not support an organization that oversaw the systemic abuse of hundreds of then children. But I think as the pandemic has shown us, 
new age spiritual seekers have a remarkable ability to justify anything as long as it's what they want to do. And people are still doing the yoga. You can still buy yogi tea in a supermarket. It's still very much a, an ongoing story and a very alive organization. Well, I'm sure we can rely on both of you to keep track of what happens with that organization. I found our conversation today really interesting. Thank you so much, Stacey Stukin and Philip De Slip, for sharing your work and insights with us. 